0: Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 122, a song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, Sojourn. Um, my name is Paul Ramsey. It's a joy to be with you this morning. If I haven't met you, um, I see a couple of new faces. We're so glad that you're here. I look forward to meeting you, uh, to hearing your story, to sharing mine, to sharing ours, uh, to, to seeing, uh, just giving God thanks for bringing us together like he has this morning. Uh, today, we are beginning a new sermon series in the book of Psalms. Uh, And you heard Dodds read Psalm 122. That'll be our psalm for this morning. Every year uh, around this time in the early fall, we join together with the rest of the congregations of Sojourn here in Houston to go through a sermon series right around the beginning of the school year. That's a time in our culture where people are doing new things, uh, where there's some energy to establish new rhythms. And so we want to lean in that together uh, across our city. Uh, in this sermon series. Psalm 122 is in the, the, the series that we're doing is going to be four weeks in, a, in, in four different Psalms in a section of the book of Psalms called the Songs of Ascent. You may be familiar with them. It's Psalms 120 through 134. And these are songs that would have been sung by the pilgrims in ancient Israel as they traveled from far and wide into Jerusalem for one of the pilgrim festivals. And so these would have been songs that would have united the people of God as they were coming to Jerusalem to worship. And so here, uh, as we've come out of the book of Nehemiah, where we've we've talked a lot about the rebuilding of, the renewal of the city of God, and we've considered what it means to participate in building the city of God, the church, in our life today, um, it's fitting that we join with the pilgrims across our city in singing these songs of ascent together, uh, Psalm 122 is the third Psalm of ascent, song of ascent. Uh, Psalm 120 is the first one, and it's a Psalm of repentance. As the Israelites were getting ready to embark on their journey, they would turn from the ways of the world, which was often marked by deceit and violence. And you can see that in Psalm 120. Psalm 121 is a Psalm of trust. Uh, trusting the Lord along the journey. I lift up, as the the pilgrims would have journeyed past the mountains, past the hills, they say, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? They would have seen all of the pagan sacrifices on the mountaintops, trying to get as close to God as they can. And the, the, the pilgrims, the Israelite pilgrims would have remembered, my help doesn't come from those hills. It comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so it was a psalm of trust that God would guard them from the sun, the moon, from, from evil, on their journey to Jerusalem. And then here Psalm twenty one twenty two is a Psalm of worship. Uh, it begins, I was glad uh, when they said to me, it was time to go to the house of the Lord. And then here, our feet are standing in the gates of Jerusalem. The, Psalm 122 is probably the Psalm that God's people sang as they entered Jerusalem uh, for their time of worship. Our feet are standing in your gates. They would have been singing this on their way into Jerusalem. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about worship. Psalm 122 is a psalm about worship. Uh, And it is, I think, a particularly important time to talk about worship in an increasingly disconnected and disjointed age in our culture with all kinds of things vying for our attention, for our loyalty, for our worship. It's appropriate for us to sit and open and engage with Psalm 122 as God's word informs our worship. So we're going to do that. Uh, As we do that, we're going to consider three things together this morning. First, we're going to look at the nature of worship. What is worship? Second, we're going to look at Psalm 122 as a picture of worship. We're going to pick out three key things that I think that this psalm tells us about worship. And then third, we're going to close by considering the aim of worship. Why do we do it? So first, let's consider for a moment the nature of worship. If we're going to talk about worship, it would be helpful to define our terms. Worship is one of those words that as Christians, as religious folk, kind of across the religions, use the word worship all over the place, like all the time. So it'd be helpful to define our terms so that it doesn't become a meaningless word that we just assume that we know what we're talking about. So what is worship? Worship is, in a nutshell, declaring what you value most. Uh, I borrowed that definition from a pastor named Ligon Duncan, and let me read the rest of that quote. Worship is about declaring what we value most, We do that by our lives and by our lips. As a result, worship fuels our actions. So if you think about that definition, worship is more than just the songs that we sing on Sunday mornings. Worship is about our whole life and what our whole life is pointing towards. Think for just a moment about what you did yesterday. Think for a moment about how you spent your time this past week, especially your free time. How did you use your free time? right if if you were to draw a map and point out how you use your time your money your thoughts all the all the things in your life in your free time what and we were to kind of put those all together in a map to what does that map point to what would be would it be ascribing importance and worth there's a well-known book that was written a few years ago well-known at least in christian circles uh, by a, a man named James K a. Smith called you are what you love it's a play on the phrase, you are what you eat, where you eat the food and then you metabolize it and it actually you become the food that you eat, literally. And he makes the same point about worship. It explores the idea that the things that you love, the things you deem worth protecting and pursuing are the things that you become like. If you think about it, think about a role model that you have. Um, I noticed this as a preacher. I, there's preachers that I look up to and I listen to their sermons. And before long, I'll listen to myself on a podcast and realize how much... I'm starting to sound like this, this or that person who I respect. If you flip back a few pages to Psalm 115, the psalmist there makes the same point. He's, psalm 115 is a psalm about idolatry. And right there in verse 8, it talks about the people who fashion silver and gold idols. And it says this, those who, be, who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. makes that same point. You are what you love. Given that you become like what you worship, it's important to give great thought to what it is that you're worshiping. If you worship money, you'll become greedy. If you worship food, you'll become indulgent and gluttonous. If you worship power, then you'll become a tyrant in whatever sphere you have control over. If you worship comfort, you'll become self-interested and unaffected by the concerns of others. If you worship God... Then you begin to walk as God walked, as Jesus walked. When you consider your life and the fruit that's being born in your life, at the map that your life is pointing towards, what is it that you're worshiping? There's a sense in which worship is about all of life. Deuteronomy 6 is known as the Shema, one of the pivotal scriptures in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. And then it goes on to say, these words that I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. That sounds a whole lot like the apostle Paul in the New Testament, when he says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. That's the, these, are, these are concepts about worship. He's just saying that all of life in a sense is worship. But there's also another sense in which worship is defined in the Bible. A second sense, it may be helpful to think of worship as having both broad and narrow definitions. Broadly defined, worship encompasses everything that you do. But narrowly defined, worship speaks of something specific. Psalm 100 verse 2 says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. That phrase, come into his presence, is a technical phrase that appears repeatedly in the Bible. It refers to something specific. It's the same phrase that appears in Psalm 122 in the original language, let us go into the house of the Lord. Let's come into his presence. It refers to coming into God's presence with the intention of worshiping him alongside others who are worshiping him. So this is a different aspect of worship, a different kind of worship. This isn't talking about all of life worship. It's corporate worship, specifically when the people of God gather together corporately as a body to worship God together. So broadly defined, Worship involves all of your life, but also narrowly defined, which we also see in Scripture, it talks about a specific kind of gathering. Even as the Bible distinguishes the two, it's important to understand the relationship between the two. They're intended to go hand in hand. They're intended to complement one another. There's this expectation in the Scriptures that there should be integrity between the worship gathering and the rest of our lives as God's people. What you do with all of your life should match what takes place in here. Same goes both directions, and where there's not integrity between those two things, that's a huge problem. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that in the history of God's people, this integrity was often not perfect, if not altogether absent. The people would come together and worship God, and then when they parted ways to the rest of their life, they lived as hypocrites, pursuing other gods, worshiping things rather than the Creator and so God rebuked them in several places very strongly. Isaiah says, This people drew near with their mouths to honor me with their lips while their hearts were far from me. And then Amos famously said, the prophet Amos, I, this is, God says this to his people. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. God hates when there's a distance between the worship that we profess with our mouths and the worship that we live with the rest of our lives. Corporate worship is supposed to be where you meet with God and then you're supposed to live in the light that he provides through the rest of your life. The problem that Amos is pointing to is not that the worship gathering itself is a problem. You guys shouldn't even bother worshiping. The problem is that they're pretending. They're saying things with their lips that they don't actually believe. They're flattering with their lips while their hearts are far from God. But it's interesting that whenever renewal happens in God's people, it usually culminates in a renewal in corporate worship. Seeds of renewal are planted in the hearts of the people, leading to a renewal of worship that spills out into the rest of the life of God's people. We just read through the book of Nehemiah. This pattern is very clearly evident in Nehemiah. God plants seeds of renewal in Nehemiah. In King Artaxerxes, it, Ahasuerus, is Artaxerxes in Nehemiah. Okay, Artaxerxes, thanks, Adam. Okay, they, they place the seeds of renewal all over the place. And then Nehemiah starts to build, build a team of people. They start rebuilding. And then one of the climactic moments in Nehemiah is right there in chapter eight, when Ezra, the prophet Ezra, finds the book of the law and brings it into the temple. And there's this renewed worship gathering. And you know how we know it's a renewed worship gathering. What's the first thing that they do? They fall flat on their faces and confess their sins. You kind of get a picture in Nehemiah 8 of Isaiah who, gives, who gets a vision of God and then falls down and says, Woe is me! I can't stand in God's presence. And then from that corporate worship gathering, in the middle of Nehemiah, then all of the reforms come. The cultural renewal and reform that comes out of this place of renewed corporate worship. This is why, and this is a common pattern in scripture, this is why regular worship is so important, why Hebrews says, Don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That verse isn't talking about meeting together for coffee to encourage a friend, while that's, of course, a very good thing to do. It's using that phrase, meeting together. That's a technical phrase. Don't neglect corporate worship. Gathering together on Sunday mornings as the church. That is the white hot center sustaining the communal life and mission of the church. When the unified people of God meet in the presence of God for corporate worship, renewal takes place and it affects all of the rest of our lives. When communal worship, and, and, and it's actually, they affect one another. When communal worship spills into all of life worship, that then invigorates God's people, gives them stories and testimonies that then come and make corporate worship all the more powerful, which then in fact affects their lives. And it's this beautiful synergy of corporate worship and all of life worship coming together to see the building up of the city of God. And so this is is point one, the nature of worship. Worship is declaring what we value most. And there's two main definitions in the Bible for worship. There's corporate worship, and there's all of life worship. They're supposed to go hand in hand. They affect one another. When communal worship breaks, life breaks. When communal worship is renewed, life is renewed. So that's point one. If this is true... If it is also true that the pattern we see of renewal among God's people centers upon corporate worship, then it makes sense for us to consider what corporate worship should look like, which is what brings us to Psalm 122. And point two, a picture of worship. Of all that's going on in this psalm, there are three things that I want to point out in terms of the picture we're given of worship. We see a picture of joy, a picture of hope, and a picture of peace. First, we get a picture of the joy of God's people. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Like I said just a moment ago, this would have been the song that God's people would have sung as pilgrims at the end of a long and arduous journey coming into Jerusalem. But they're not exasperated. As they enter the gates, they're overjoyed. Here we are. We're standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. They're not simply happy that they got to their destination. Their joy is rooted in what Jerusalem is, what it means that they're in Jerusalem. Verse three, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. And let's dig in for a moment to, to these statements to see what they mean. When the Psalmist writes, the Psalmist being David in this case, when David writes in verse three, That Jerusalem is a city that's bound firmly together. This is a specific phrase that calls us back to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, back from the days of Moses. In the middle of all of the instructions for constructing the tent of meeting where God would meet with his people in the wilderness, God says this through Moses in Exodus chapter 26. He says, You shall make 50 clasps of bronze. So they're building all of the different sections of the tabernacle, and like partway through this extensive list of instructions, you shall make 50 clasps of bronze, and put the clasps into the loops, and couple the tent together, that it may be a single whole, or that it may be bound firmly together. This word is, this phrase is a, would have been a It would have immediately pulled them back to the construction of the tabernacle. When you build a tent, it's going to be made up of all kinds of different sections that you're going to be careful to make bronze rings and bind it all together so that the clear picture is a unified effort made up of the diversity of offerings of God's people. One of the older English translations of Psalm 122 translates this verse is, Jerusalem is built as a city that is at unity with itself. In other words... This isn't simply a statement regarding the physical integrity of the city. It certainly is. It's a, it would have been an architectural beauty. But it's also a kind of architectural metaphor, to borrow a phrase from one writer, for what worship is. In other words, the Jerusalem that the psalmist is describing here as a city that is bound firmly together is, a, is not just an architectural marvel, it's also a social and spiritual marvel. Here's what I mean. Jerusalem is the city to which the tribes ascend. As we read in verse four, not tribe, the different tribes of Israel are coming together from all across the land, not one uniform mass, but an eclectic, diverse group of different families coming together out of a world marked by violence and division from all different places, different languages, different professions, different intelligences, different amounts of wealth. A substantive picture of diversity coming together to say and do the same things in the same place as a reflection of the fact that they are after the same thing, namely God, which is the central idea, not just a social marvel, but a spiritual marvel. Jerusalem is where God's people come into the presence of God to enjoy fellowship with Him and through Him with one another. In Revelation 21, um, at the end of the Bible, One of the, it's Revelation chapter 21 is one of the chapters of the Bible that you read. It's hard not to tear up as you read it. It's this beautiful picture, uh, a vision of a large multitude from every tribe and tongue finally coming together to live with God face to face forevermore. And there's this interesting section that if you're anything like me, you tend to kind of skim through right in the middle of Revelation chapter 21. There's two reasonably long paragraphs describing the construction of the city. Talks about how many gates there are, what kinds of stones the different parts looked like, how many foundations there were for the walls, the measurements of the city and of the gates, and on and on these paragraphs go. And so why are all those details in here? The angel takes John, who's the writer of Revelation, the apostle John, and says, let me show you how amazing this city is. And John looks, he writes down what he sees, he marvels at his beauty. And that's what's going on in Psalm 122. In Revelation 21, we kind of see that Psalm 122 is our Psalm 2. We're here in this city, built beautifully, unified, and we get to pause and marvel. And what's the most important piece that we marvel at? Revelation 21 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of god gives it light and its lamp is the lamb you see the central reality of the city of god is that this is where god is it's almost painfully obvious to to say that out loud but that is the point of jerusalem being the city of god Let us go to the house of the Lord, being overjoyed at the beauty of Jerusalem. The central emphasis is that this is where God is and this is where God meets with his people. When a person is confused or in distress, you might be familiar with the term, you know, things are just falling apart. I just feel like I'm falling apart. I need to take a break so that I can get myself back together, right? We use this in in common speech, these phrases. We call that person, when they take a break and they're successful, We they say, that, that person is really put together. All the things that were falling apart have been put back in their proper place in, in, in balanced measure and in integrity. As Christians, when things seem to be falling apart, where do we go for this? The answer here is worship. We go to the place to which the tribes ascend, the city that is built and put together firmly. The unified whole within which we are made whole here's how eugene peterson puts it in jerusalem everything that god said was remembered and celebrated when you went to jerusalem you encountered the great foundational realities god created you god redeemed you god provided for you in jerusalem you saw in ritual and heard proclaimed in preaching the powerful history excuse me, the powerful history-shaping truth that God forgives our sins and makes it possible to live without guilt and with purpose. In Jerusalem, all the scattered fragments of experience, all the bits and pieces of truth and feeling and perception were put together in a single whole. This is what brings the people of God joy when they hear that it's time to go to the house of God. We are going to the place where things are put together. It's a rich, joy that they experience. It's an informed joy. Going to the house of the Lord was going into the presence of God made possible through the deliverance that he offers in a way that puts us back together. And this provokes worship. It's the first thing we see in this picture of worship, joy. We see a worship based upon and informed through Joy. A thankful eagerness to simply be with God that is satisfied when it's time to go to his house and worship. The second thing we see in Psalm 122 is a picture of the hope of God's people. And Let me tell you what I mean by this. Consider the observations that the Psalm makes about Jerusalem. It's a city that's bound firmly together. It's a place where thrones for righteous judgment were set. We read later on in verse 5. It's the place where it's decreed there in verse 4 that all the tribes should go to worship to experience unity with God and with one another. If we pause and consider what we know about the history of God's people, like I hinted at a moment ago, we know that these observations would have been aspirational at best. Verse 5 says that there were, like I said, there were thrones of judgment set in Jerusalem, the thrones of the house of David. The kingly throne in Jerusalem represented righteousness and justice. The righteousness and justice of God manifest in the king God placed on the throne to judge with equity and righteousness. But if you're familiar with the story, you know that righteousness and justice were not the lived experience of Israel very often. This is some these these numbers might not be exactly right, but I did some math. Of the 24 kings in Judah, which is the southern kingdom, only seven of them were spoken of as doing right in the eyes of the Lord. In the northern kingdom, we're 0 for 19 in terms of good kings who did what was right in the order, with the exception of perhaps Jehu. You can argue with me about it later. I call it 0 for 19. But here's the thing. Even as these descriptors of the justice and the beauty and the unity of Jerusalem were aspirational, Worship for God's people does not depend on how things are going for God's people. They were not invited to worship when things were going well. They weren't invited to worship when they looked around and saw things as they should be. Ah, now we can truly worship God. If that were the case, there would be precious little worship in God's people. No, the people of God were invited to worship God regardless of whether or not things were going well. And that's not to say... I want to pause and notice this. Don't hear me say what I'm not saying. That's not to say there was nothing worth celebrating. When they looked at Jerusalem, it was a sight to behold. It was beautifully built. When they considered the leaders God had placed over them, there were many stories of of faithful men and women ministering uh, the the glorious grace of God to his people. But Jerusalem and the people who lived in it were clearly a work in progress, had not yet reached its full potential physically, socially, spiritually, spiritually. And this probably resonates with us. I met with a friend of mine, a church planter, uh, who I had the uh, privilege of doing a residency through a couple of years ago, and he planted a church up in Magnolia, New Magnolia, Old Magnolia, one of the Magnolias, the Magnolia that's close to the Woodlands, just north of the Woodlands. It's not important. Great. He lives. He's north of Houston, um, and uh, I was. I got coffee with him this week. I love. Uh, it's my brother. His my brother's name it's Derek. Um, and we were just talking about the life of the church, and he was telling me the story of the last few years in his church. And listening to him share the testimony of God's faithfulness amidst the what were clearly the hardest years of his entire life was a beautiful thing to sit and witness with him and pray with him into. Because, you see, we're in a moment right now. It became clear to me in that moment. We're in a moment where the walls are crumbling in many places. He is telling me the story of, very clearly crumbling walls, and yet God meeting them in times of worship, demonstrating his faithfulness, sustaining my friend Derek and his family. It's a wonderful thing that our worship is not based upon what we've been able to attain as people. Worship is not based upon what we're experiencing in our lives. Worship is instead based upon what God has done and what God has said he will continue to do, which gives us a posture of joy and hope, despite what our eyes can see. And corporate worship breathes life and hope into an oftentimes discouraged, disheartened, and exhausted people. How? We're told in verse four of Psalm 122 that the content of the worship is thanksgiving. The tribes went up to Jerusalem as was decreed For Israel, what did the Lord decree that they should do when they come together in Jerusalem? They should give thanks to the name of the Lord. That's what it says in verse four. They traveled from far and wide. They came into God's presence. They brought their sacrifices. And why? To give thanks to the name of the Lord. This is the central purpose of the worship of God's people. We don't worship because God has given us work to do, while he's certainly done that. We don't worship God because of nice things that he's given us to steward, while we certainly do give him thanks for those things. We worship God primarily, first and of first importance, because of who he is and what he has done. We just sang, let the nations be glad, because God has given us great stuff to do, because salvation is in the Lord. We sang, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, not my works, my strength, how great I am and how great my life is. Christ has won the victory against sin and death on the cross. His vindication came through the resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father in glory. And Jesus has said that he will finish the work. He is making all things new, and we are looking forward to the final renewal of all things. When you are in Christ, your future is secure And so when you worship, when we worship, we don't gather primarily in order to seek something that we don't already have. I want to pause on that for a moment. We don't worship to seek unity primarily. Not according to Psalm 122. We worship to give thanks. That's what we give ourselves to. And then we enjoy the peace and unity that God does, that God weaves among us. We don't gather primarily to seek what we don't have. We gather to give thanks for what we already have. We gather to remember what God has done, which then reminds us of what God is doing, even if we can't see it, and what God has promised to do in the end. A life of thanksgiving for what God has already provided cultivates a trust in the fact that God will continue to provide. He is a God who makes good on his promises. And so, Christian, when you find yourself distressed, sad, cynical, despairing, chances are you haven't reflected on what God has done and what God has said nearly as much as what your eyes can see and what your body is feeling. The good news is that is a shared experience of every honest and wise Christian. Honest and wise Christians experience pain and get sad if we're engaging with the world around us, with the people around us, and we're sympathizing, not just sympathizing, but empathizing with them, we will experience pain. But then we come back together and we don't worship that pain. We remember what God has done and what he's promised. In a way that teaches us that through anything that happens in our lives, we can trust that what God is doing is purposeful, even if the purpose is not clear to us. And picture... This is kind of a silly example, but if you picture a construction worker um, who's working on a big commercial building, whose job it is to assemble the scaffolding, right? So he's building the scaffolding. He's not sitting there frustrated, right? Well, hopefully, ideally, he's not sitting there frustrated thinking, man, this is dumb. This isn't even gonna be a part of the finished structure. What am I even doing? And then you picture that construction worker cutting his hand on a piece of scaffolding, starting to bleed and having to go to the hospital. is he sitting there just so angry, like, ah, oh, this is dumb, it was, it was pointless and I got hurt doing it. And then picture that same construction worker who knows and understands that what he's doing is part of a larger process, who works for a trustworthy contractor. He doesn't know, the guy who's doing the scaffolding, he doesn't need to know everything that's gonna go into the structure. But what he'll get to do, Lord willing, is after a couple of years, walk down the street and see a beautiful building. He doesn't see anything that he did, but he marvels, remembering that he knows that despite him, his his boss used him. You see, when we worship, we don't worship the work of our hands. We worship the work of God's hands. We don't look at what we've done and say, aren't we great? We consider what God has done and promised and say, isn't he great? We don't trust in ourselves and our plans for what we want to happen. We trust in God and his plans for what he wants to happen. The command here at the heart of Psalm 122 is to give thanks to the name of the Lord. And this is where we start and stay in worship. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing alleluia. St. Augustine once said, a Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. Often we don't feel like it. And so we try to justify not doing it, saying, you know what, it would be dishonest for me to go into a place of worship and praise God when I don't feel like it. I feel like I would be a hypocrite. Don't get me wrong, hypocrisy is a huge problem, but hypocrisy is not primarily an issue of feelings. It's an issue of allegiance. To quote Eugene Peterson, when thinking about feelings, the Psalm essentially says, I don't care whether you feel like it or not, As was decreed, give thanks to the Lord. If we only worshiped when we felt like it, or like I said, if we thought things were going well enough to have something to worship, then there would be precious little worship. Not feeling it, in fact, is precisely often precisely the reason we need to gather with the saints in worship, to have our affections stirred, to engage with the Holy Spirit wrought fellowship and communion of believers, to ask God to breathe life into our weary souls. Here's the thing you want to know, check this out. You want to know God's plan for the world? It's us. <laughs> We are God's plan for the world. <laughs> okay, maybe not as funny to you as it is to me. If I love you guys, and I love this church. But I'm looking at this room, and I'm looking at myself, and I'm thinking, I don't know that we got this. But to quote one commentator, whatever the limitations of its citizens, Jerusalem was where God saw fit to build his house. Whatever the limitations of this church or any church, we can nevertheless come together in worship and thanksgiving because our hope is not in us. We worship precisely because our hope is not in us. The Bible is full of stories of groups of people who shouldn't have been able to do what they wound up doing because it wasn't them. It was God who was at work. Stretching our worship around thanksgiving helps us to structure and understand our lives, not primarily around what we do, but first and foremost around God and what he has done. If we get that backwards, we get disappointment and cynicism because we're constantly confronted with our weakness. But if thanksgiving is aimed at the words and works of God, then we can rejoice in our weakness because we remember that in our weakness, God's strength is made perfect. That's the second thing we see in this picture of worship we're given in Psalm 122. The first was joy and the second is hope. And for the third thing, let's read a few verses, starting in verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The third thing that I want to point out in this picture of worship that we're given here in Psalm 122 is, of course, peace. Once the people of God have experienced the joy at ascending into the presence of the Lord, once they've given thanks to God for all that he has done, only then do they turn to God and ask for something. And if we think about it, it follows uh, beautifully. Think about this. What if people, you know, picture God's people coming into his presence, enjoying fellowship with one another, giving him thanks for all that he's done for them, for delivering them, for making a way for them to be back into his presence, and then pausing and saying, gosh, you know what, God? You know what I'm thinking about right now? Please give me that new car. Please give me, please give me a wife. Please give me that promotion or that house that I've been wanting so badly. It almost sounds silly to think about those things at this particular moment. Don't get me wrong, those can be wonderful things in due order to pursue and to give God thanks for. But when we talk about worship, about giving God thanks for all that he's done, for creating us, for being patient with us, for delivering us, for welcoming us into his presence, making peace among us, then the prayer that makes sense is this one that follows in Psalm 122. God, please, please give us the peace that we need in order to enjoy this fellowship with you in all of our lives. God, please help us to take this joy and this hope that we're experiencing in this moment of worship and live it out in all that we do. Peace, God, please give us, give the city of Jerusalem, give the city of God peace. This is a prayer for peace, both from without and within. And certainly talking about physical peace, Protection from outsiders who might want to do us harm. Give us security, Lord, security within your towers. That's a military language. Those would have been tall watchtowers uh, given a setup for the defense and protection of the city. Give us peace from our enemies, the psalmist prays. Also, though, this is a prayer if we look at verse 7, for peace within your walls. And again, verse 8, for my brothers' and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. If you've been with the people of God for any length of time, you are probably going to be unsurprised at this prayer. Peace, even among God's people, takes work. It's interesting that Jesus, when he talks to the disciples and he talks about what it's going to be like to live as his disciples in the world, he assumes that conflict and division will happen. And he puts the onus on both the offended and the offender to fix that when it happens. In one place, on the one hand, he says in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him of his fault. If he listens, then you have gained your brother. And then, on the other hand, back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had said, if you brought your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has a grievance against you, drop your gift right where it is and go and be reconciled. In both cases, peace is secured through forgiveness. And how is it that you're able to forgive wrongdoing? Within the church, Jesus tells a parable of the unforgiving servant to get to the heart of the issue. It's easy to forgive a debt for someone when you know that you've been forgiven much more. In other words, how is peace among us preserved and pursued, even among sinners who wrong one another? By being a people captivated by and regularly giving God thanks for the forgiveness he has given us. In other words, coming to the house of the Lord to give thanks to the name of the Lord. In this way we can see that Psalm 122 gives us the bridge between corporate worship and all of life worship. And the order here is, of course, critical. Peace is an overflow of worship. I've heard too many stories, you probably are familiar with them, of people who are wanting so badly to work for peace in the world. And they engage in something and they want to make peace and they just make a bigger mess than when they than when they arrived. The only people who are able to truly make peace are those who have peace, and the only way, according to the scriptures, to truly have peace is to have peace with God, who then makes peace among people. Only those who have peace can be patient enough to engage with others without violence. You see, peace is not the thing of first importance in this psalm it 's not even the main point of this psalm. it is something that follows to be sure, and it 's clear i mean I'm, i don 't want to disparage it and create an over you know i don't want to divide the two from one another but you see my point pursuing peace is not the main command of this psalm of first importance is the decree of god to give thanks to do his name that's what comes first it is only from that place of hopeful enjoyment of the presence of god and thanksgiving that peace then flows which brings me to our third and final point what is the aim of worship what's the point this brothers sisters friends is the critical question what is the point of worship listen to this quote from an early 20th century christian philosopher named nicholas birdyadev he said there is something morally repulsive about modern activistic theories which deny contemplation and recognize nothing but struggle for them not a single moment has value in itself but is only a means for what follows. That second sentence is the most important one. For them, not a single moment has value in itself, but is only a means for what follows. We live in a culture, friends, that believes that every moment is only good for what it provides in the future. Every moment is only useful in as much as it makes something else better, as a means to a different end. Every day of work is simply a stepping stone to the next uh, promotion. Every conversation with a non-Christian is simply a stepping stone to their conversion. Every meal I give to a person who can't uh, afford to feed himself or herself is only a stepping stone to them being able to become self-sufficient and not dependent on anyone else. And listen, those things that I just mentioned may be good things to pursue and to hope that you're on the way to, but if this is how we live our lives if the primary category through which we live our lives is that everything is only good if it gives me something else in the future, then we're living a life that avoids the present moment and lives in the fantasy of what things could one day be. Rather than a life of patient hope and joy in God, this leads to a life of impatience and white knuckled fervor with the only thing between me and my goals being all the things I have yet to do. If you've seen the musical Hamilton, this is Aaron Burr singing, I'm gonna wait for it everything, scheming, manipulating everything in his life to try to get to some future end that is a fantasy reality in his mind. In short, we must break from this theory of life and reality if we're to understand and embrace why we worship. Francis Schaeffer, another Christian philosopher, wrote a book called The God Who Is There in which he makes a lot of great points, the main main point of which is a very similar point to this one. While God is certainly the God of the past and the future, God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is everywhere in time and space. While this is true, the place God meets with us is actually here and now, in the present moment. That is how God chooses to meet with his people. God doesn't dwell in your imagination of the future that might someday go according to your plan. He dwells in his church by his spirit in you and in me, and in his invitation to us, excuse me, and his invitation to us is to enjoy him today, to savor the moment in itself. As the Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? Well done. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper reworded it slightly. He broke the catechism. He said, man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And I love that tweak. This is not something that we will one day enjoy. This catechism is not saying one day we're going to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is an, a glorification and an enjoyment that we get to experience today. I was glad we sing in Psalm one twenty two when they said to me, "Let us go to the house of the Lord. Here we are in Jerusalem in God's presence. Let us give thanks. Let us enjoy God." Worship is a present, beautiful activity that takes space in time, and excuse me, that takes place in time and space. God is with us, not God will be with us, not God was one day with us, and today is somewhere that I don't know. God is with us. As we go about our lives in the world, we lose sight of that truth. In this room, imperfect as it is, we are brought back to remember that God is with us. God knows that there are spaces and environments in your life that are characterized more by frustration than by worship. Picture a conflict that you're trying to piece your way through. And remember that Jesus actually uses worship, corporate worship, as the means by which we're reminded that we need to go and be reconciled. If you know your brother has a grievance against you, Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar. Where is he talking about being at that moment? In the context of corporate worship. Oftentimes it's in the context of a worship gathering that we remember we have been forgiven much. My goodness, I need to go. conflict corporate worship reminds us of the way out maybe your life has changed we have a we have a really good habit especially as a church in our age demographic of romanticizing our college christian ministries those of you who were christians in college we have a way of thinking back and thinking man you know what i used to study the bible and it was wonderful i cannot wait till i have a time in my life where i can talk for 90 minutes straight without distraction about the bible my gosh that was amazing God knows that your life has changed and his intention as we come together for worship is to remind you that he's still here with you. Maybe that 90 minute time in scripture was absolutely life-giving and wonderful and maybe the 35 seconds of reading scripture tomorrow morning is gonna be just as wonderful when God meets you there in the middle of changing a diaper or rushing to a meeting and remembering that you forgot to read the, whatever it is that you're in the middle of. Maybe just maybe God intends to be your God today like he was when you had a wonderful experience with him 10 years ago. It's good for us to recount God's blessings in the past, but it's foolish to think that our goal should be to go back there because God is right here. You see, it's often in the in-between moments that God is most tangibly present. If you think about Uh, Psalm 23, it's in the valley of the shadow of death that God prepares a table for David. In between the mountaintop experiences, that's where God meets David. Think about Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Jesus doing a ton of ministry over here on the journey. Halfway to a ton of ministry over there, he meets with this woman at the well. That's where he's present with her in an in-between moment. One of the most important important moments of my week this past week was a 90-second conversation with a brother. I approached your brother and asked him to clarify something that I'd heard that he said. I prayed about that conversation. I sought wisdom from others on that conversation. I read the Bible and what it says about having conversations like this. I prayed about it some more. And then I had a 90 second conversation. And that was the most important conversation of my entire week. God was so present in that moment. And it was simply me listening to what Jesus said and go and talk to your brother. That was it. I don't want to lift my, I don't want to say, yeah, I did it. But this is, it was the most important moment of my week. And that came out of a moment last week when I was reading the liturgy and I experienced the mercy and forgiveness of God. And I thought, I need to talk to this guy. It was in this room that the spark was lit that said, I need to go, I need to go talk to him. This is why meeting together, encouraging one another is so critical. Coming together into the presence of God, giving thanks to his name, writes our hearts. It sends us out to experience the peace of God in ways that we've never experienced. It may be that God wants you to know intimacy with him while you're in the middle of a meeting at work, rather than in your quiet time, all by yourself, on a hillside, with the sun, you know, middle of the sunrise, experiencing the beauty of God. It may be that God wants you to know his presence in a, you know, you might have confessed sin and experienced God's mercy in like a three hour confession session, or it may be that you need a three minute phone call with a brother to say, hey, I did this. Brother can say to you on the phone, hey, you're right. I got like three minutes, but I want you to know that God loves you. Let me pray for you. God, please heal him, forgive him and help him to walk in newness of life. All right, gotta go brother. It could be that in that moment, you experienced the mercy of God just as powerfully, if not more than you did in that three hour confession session a few years ago that you still talk about. I'm trying to cast a vision for you of a theology of the moment. God is present and that is what we are reminded of in our time of worship. It's preparing for these moments that we come to give God, thanks to be filled with joy and hope and then bring that peace, which rests not on the foundation of our circumstances, but on the foundation of the providence of God with us into the world so that we can experience him anew. And brothers and sisters, this is the magnet to which people who are outside the church will come. If you think right now that the way that you can make peace in the world is by figuring out the right way to argue with the person who doesn't believe in God, then you're wrong. If you think that the, the reason God placed you in the world is to go and convince others and that they are wrong, to go just show them how much better your arguments are, to, to, to coerce them somehow into faith, then you're wrong. Peace, this peace that we read about in Psalm 122 is the thing. I was just talking with a brother of mine uh, who was saved within the past year out of a really set, dark set of circumstances. And he told me that all the, we, had, we, had, we, had, we got together this week and he was telling me about what his, the past few weeks of his life have looked like and he said, you know what? Everyone in my life keeps looking at me and saying, what is it? I want what you got. He's got the peace of Christ in his heart. It's nothing that he's done. He says it. To me. He's said it to me over and over again. It's, it's not me. This is what God does. As we gather to worship, he reminds us that he is here with us. He gives us joy joy gives us hope, a kind of joy and hope, not based on what we can do, but on what he has done, that gives us peace and patience to know that we don't have to force it. We can simply love him and love one another and watch as God does the rest. I was glad when they told me it was time to go to worship. When this psalm was first written, things were far from perfect. Even today, things, I know, you know, are far from perfect in the world and even here in our church. But God is here and there's something magnificent that happens when we come into his presence and give him thanks. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Psalm 122. Thank you for reminding us that you are good regardless of what our eyes can see. Thank you for giving us this picture of worship, a worship that is filled with joy, not a foolish joy that ignores circumstance, but a joy that rests not in circumstance, but in you. I pray that you'd give us that joy, Lord. I pray that where we are despairing and cynical and disillusioned today, that you would just meet us there and help us to give thanks to you for what you've said and what you've done. Lord, I pray that you would give our church testimonies You would give our church stories of your work amidst us, by which, through which we can remind one another that you are with us, you're present, and you're always working. Please give us those stories and help us as leaders to cultivate space for those stories to be shared. And Lord, remind us that worship is the lifeblood of the church. Not based upon what we can do, but based upon what you can do because it is you who are able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy. Accordingly, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And let us give thanks to you today and forevermore. Amen.